This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It was a hot topic of discussion this past week on Fight Back as we continued to try and get some insight into the new Bill 7 at Queen's Park designed by the Ford PCs to stabilize the health care system. The most controversial part of the proposed law allows hospital doctors to transfer elderly, frail patients to a long-term care home not of their own choosing, as they wait on a home of their or their family's choice. Long-term care minister Paul Calandra continues to insist this would not be done without consent. But then why do we need the law? And what about the issue of pressuring vulnerable elders? Libby asked these questions of our Recovering Politicians panel on Tuesday. Sherry DeNovo is a former Ontario NDP MPP and Order of Canada recipient. Charles Souza is a former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. And Lisa Raitt is former Deputy Leader of the Federal Conservative Party. The way I look at it is I believe that most families do want to have their loved ones in long-term care homes, that they do want them out of the hospital so that they can have better visits with them and there's a lot more freedom when you're in a long-term care home. And we also know that there's a significant number of beds that are being utilized for people who don't need to have that kind of care that you receive in a hospital. So what this government, I believe, is saying, we're going to set up these new transition beds and we're going to say you can go to these transition beds. We're going to make it a law so that, you, and I understand the concern around whether or not people are going to be forced to go to these beds while we're waiting to go into the long-term care bed of your choice. And the way I look at it is I thought about it too. This is how I look at it. So when you're asked to provide your list of long-term care homes that are acceptable, you usually give five yep. and you rank them. And you're waiting for the ranking to come up. And if you say no to no matter where it comes up on your list, no matter if it's one, two, three, or four, or five, if you say no, you're dropped to the bottom of the list, right? So perhaps what's happening here is that they're saying, okay, you're not going to be penalized um, by taking a transitional bed. You're still going to be maintaining your your space to go into these long-term care homes. And you're we're just going to move you out of the hospital into it. So for me as a caregiver... I wouldn't feel like I'm making a final decision that my loved one is going to be 40, 50, 60 kilometers away from me forever. I know that they're going to be there on an interim basis, and I know the desire is going to prioritize them to move them into the long-term care places of their choice when they do free up. Charles, do you agree uh, the opposition uh, held a news conference tomorrow, including a new MPP uh, who was an emergency physician, and he talked about frail elderly people being pressured to go somewhere they don't want to go and the power imbalance when you have a doctor or someone else, you know, telling you to do something and and also the issue if there were social workers or something and if this is what their bosses want as a result, they'd also be under pressure. Is that a valid 
concern? I think it's a, a valid concern indeed. I, I agree, and I would like to agree with what Lisa is saying in that the transitional beds, if they were to be used as such, the worry, the concern is then they don't become so. And the individuals get locked into certain locations that they otherwise wouldn't want to be in, and they run the risk of of being delayed or being prolonged in those uh, situations. Sherry, what do you make of it? I mean, we've been talking to people like uh, Dr. Samir Sinha, Donna Duncan of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and, and they're concerned about people's civil rights. Uh, absolutely, Libby, and you're so right. Why do you need a bill uh, if this is not in some way coercive? Um, so, I, and, and to and to Lisa's point, I mean, we're talking about frail elderly here, um, many of them who need assistance. Uh, the idea of being 40 to 50, you know, kilometers away from anyone who can visit you, with the thought that this is transitional when you might not have that long to live, um, isn't comforting at all. And not, not only that, but this is, a, this is actually a rights issue, too. Their medical files will be transferred. Um, and, uh, and again, I, I would simply ask the panelists, would you like to be sent, you know, from your hospital bed to a, a, a long-term care residence, not of your choosing? I mean, I think most people's answer to that would be no. Sherry DeNovo, former Ontario NDP MPP and an Order of Canada recipient. Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. And Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Federal Conservative Party. Fightback's Recovering Politicians panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fightback. I'm Jane Brown. By the time the registration deadline passed a week ago Friday, 372 candidates were certified by Toronto's city clerk. More than we expected, and with no wards where a councillor candidate is running unopposed. Though that is the case for two Toronto school board seats. This is where Libby got the discussion going on Thursday with our Tune Into the Town panel, who discuss all things municipal, including last weekend's Toronto Island ferry crash. Lauren O'Neill is senior news editor at Blog TO. David Crombie is a former Toronto mayor, and Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village. Karen said she was happy to hear of so many running in the Toronto election. I think it's very encouraging, actually. And I, I think part of the, that number being as high as it is is because of the, the fact that so many councillors, for whatever reasons, decided not to run again. And so I think it's good for the city. I think it's good to see so much interest in running uh, for the municipal seats. Um, and, I, and I think it's, uh, it just shows that there is, uh, you know, quite a bit of interest in making sure the city runs well, which I think is all good. David? It was uh, quite a bit kind of a scare the last couple of weeks when we saw fewer and fewer names, and dramatically so, but there are a number of people who decided either late to do so or simply decided late to announce, but uh, it, it's certainly good news. There's lots for the city council to do over the next four years. Lauren? I mean, I was surprised I, with the low number initially and, and also delighted to see that people are, are wanting to participate in this election, and I'm hoping that that shows up um, in terms of voter turnout as well on election day. 
Oh, <laughs> that's we'll that's going to be another story. Yeah. School boards. There are some people who are saying, what do we need those elected spots for? David, do you have a view of that? Well, well I do, actually. It, it's uh, changed over the years because I, the school board was always at least a good place, uh, an important place in terms of policymaking, but it was also a good place for people interested in public service to understand a little about the process. But if I had to choose today, I would say it is time for to take away some responsibilities of the Board of Education because it seems to me that they should be simply worrying about the quality of education and they should leave, for example, uh, real estate, uh, the, the use of land and all of that uh, to the city council. Getting to that ferry... So to me, uh, some of this was really strange. The ferries are old, we know that, so there was a ferry accident. I thought that it was a really kind of knee-jerk, non-customer service reaction saying, okay, too bad, the rest of the summer is, is uh, you know, a mess in terms of getting to the island, which a lot of people want to get to, and then suddenly all better. Yeah, it, I mean, I think that's the issue, right, is the communication in that whether there was a good explanation or not for the ferry accident, it, it didn't make logical sense that suddenly service would be interrupted till the end of the summer and then, uh, and then just reinstated without any explanation as to what happened and why. So it leaves people just feeling that, that to your point, I don't know if I want to get on the ferry. <laughs> like, I'll tell you, I will not be getting on the ferry to go over to the island. Like, after seeing the videos and after hearing about everyone um, who was, there's 12 people injured, uh, witnesses who were aboard said that it was worse than they had been in car crashes. It was worse than that. It was more jarring than that. Like, how terrified those people must have been, everyone on board. Um, and then without any explanation as to what went wrong. I mean, it crashed into the into the dock they're just going to put it back into service like i think that it would be very scary to get back on any of those ferries without knowing why david i know you're involved with the revitalization of ontario place and some people are saying that should be an election issue and what we see so far is a travesty well yeah i have not called it a travesty but there's a couple of things that need to be said it's a great gem on the waterfront uh, it, it, it deserves, uh, I think, all of the public uh, uh, discussion you can get. We've had quite a bit now, but it seems to have been cut off, and, and it seems to me there are a couple of things. One, the idea that we should be changing or we should be redesigning Ontario Place without at the same time making sure it's connected to and a part of the celebration of the, of the Canadian National Exhibition site, those two sites need to be dealt with together. Some time ago, Ken Greenberg, a great Toronto architect, yes. did a, a piece that was, I think, outstanding in terms of integrating uh, those two sites. It allows you to create the making of money on the exhibition site, which it's become very much, while at the same time maintaining the traditional understanding of Ontario Place as a, as a place where people can go en famille, enjoy themselves, and enjoy nature. David Crombie, former Toronto Mayor, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor at Blog TO. Fightbacks tune into the town panel, heard every Thursday after the noon news. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fightback. Coming up after the break, it was a somber Ukrainian Independence Day as Vladimir Putin's war continues.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. This past Wednesday was Ukraine's 31st Independence Day. It also marked six months since the beginning of Vladimir Putin's Russian war in the sovereign nation. Back on February 24th, the conventional wisdom was that Russian forces would roll over Ukraine in a matter of days. That did not happen, but it has become a war of attrition, a war we have become accustomed to knowing is happening, but may not be top of mind. On Independence Day, Libby was joined by a panel of experts to discuss. Professor Janice Stein is founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Peter Sturin is the president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Toronto branch. And Roman Waschuk is a former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine and spoke with us from Kyiv. We are on, I think, uh, the sixth air raid alarm of the day, but without yet having seen the uh, much-feared massive Russian missile assault on downtown Kyiv. I was in my new job as business ombudsman, supposed to have a meeting with a government official this morning. It was moved to tomorrow because I said, yeah, this being anywhere near the government district is a bad idea uh, today. But looks like so far, either Ukrainian air defense is doing very well, or the Russians, even in this respect, are not as powerful and scary as they make themselves out to be. Is it possible they're lulling you into some kind of sense of security? Uh, that is possible. You know, anything can happen. I think one of the things that has happened, and it's a physical manifestation, is the uh, sort of Russian zombie parade on the uh, main street of Kiev, where basically destroyed Russian armor is arrayed in the parade, victory parade they never had. That there's a degree of demystification of Russia as this all-powerful, amazing military machine where it turns out that a smaller neighbor and ordinary citizens and brave soldiers can actually stop it in its tracks. Peter Sturin, what's your reaction to what Roman is saying? Well, it's uh, it's very heartening to hear, Roman, that at least the bombs are not falling as the warnings came out from so many. Uh, the U.S. government has actually, was actually telling Americans to, to leave uh, the country for fear of of the attacks. Uh, I did see that Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in Kiev actually today, so so maybe that's helping the situation and, and the Russians are maybe uh, thinking twice about uh, doing any terrorist acts at this particular time, although that hasn't stopped them in the past. Professor Janice Stein, where are we at? Has this become a war of attrition? Sadly, um, Libby, it has. You know, it is Ukrainian Independence Day, as Roman was saying, and I think we should stop for just a minute and recognize just the enormous hardship that Ukraine has undergone over these last six months. Um, yes, they are fighting with extraordinary bravery and fighting back um, in every way that they can. But the damage that they have endured both in casualties, human casualties, economic damage, which we don't talk enough about, 
is really extraordinary in this day and age. So this is a war, frankly, which I see no end to right now, in which Ukraine is undergoing extraordinary hardship and which the Russians are also losing and losing badly. It's tragic. I don't share the optimism, unfortunately. Um, winter is prime fighting time because the ground is frozen, the tanks roll. It's actually the mud season that is difficult to fight in. That's why that invasion happened in February, because they were up against the possibility of thaw. Um, Russia has tremendous strategic capacity to absorb punishment. And Unfortunately, that's often what war comes down to. It's not who's morally right. It's not even who has the better weapons. Uh, It's who can absorb the punishment for the longest period of time. So this is a very, very, very hard road in front of all of us. Roman, I think a siren went off there. Uh, That's correct. So... uh most Ukrainians around me in the park are ignoring the sirens, but as a risk-averse Canadian, I think I'm heading for some cover. Okay. Um, I don't know if you can stay on the phone while you do, but uh, the important thing is to stay safe. Okay. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's what I promised my mother, so it's okay. <laughs> if she's listening, Mom, I'm going to a safe location. Roman Waschuk, former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine, on the line from Kiev. Professor Janice Stein, founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. And Peter Sturin, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Toronto branch. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Are you tipping more than you did before the pandemic? According to a recent survey from Restaurants Canada, most of us are, and this goes for takeout as well as dining in. It's been dubbed as tipflation, with the average tip in Ontario now at just under 19%, up from 15%. Libby was joined by BlogTO's resident food expert, Renee Suen, to discuss. Well, I feel like before we talk about, um, you know, some of the potential, I guess, issues or I wouldn't even say issues like what led to this is that we also have to be very aware that this particular survey came out from results that were gathered in April of this year. So we're talking about four months ago, and I think we really have to examine the landscape at that time. You know, uh, as Torontonians, Canadians, basically any citizen in the world who've been involved in the, have this pandemic sort of situation, they've all been exposed to a situation where, you know, there are closures. And here in Ontario, we've had the, the longest, really, um, out of the rest of, the, of, most of most of the country. And so we're seeing a lot of operators closed for 18 months. Um, a lot of citizens who normally patron restaurants always also not having those opportunities to dine in or, or enjoy those moments of being in a restaurant. So at around April, with the you know relaxing of some of the rules uh, and also people being vaccinated and being uncomfortable to come back into dining rooms, this is the point where they're now coming in with somewhat new, if you want to call it, new practices of having been tipping quite a bit because you know during the pandemic and maybe slightly before they started to realize, as you had noted, that it's kind of hard for people in the restaurant industry, especially given the situation with restaurant closures and the rising cost of food and um, minimum wage increases and a lot of operators were struggling through that 
that whole period of, of, of pan pandemic restrictions. And so they feel generous. There's a lot of people, like even myself, sometimes when you go to um, regular, you know, I mean, just very quick service things where in the past, traditionally, you might not even have to tip or um, there's the option. And now as you before you even cash out, you do have that suggested tip. And sometimes I do feel guilty if I if I don't do the full amount and maybe 11% or 20%, as you've said. But I think that's the one thing is that Part of it uh, that we noticed um, is just chatting with people in the industry is that for some operators, they haven't gone to changing that. And it's as, as, many, as, as much as people are continuing to tip very generously, they're like, you know, it's kind of like, what's not a broken system? If everyone's feeling generous, then they're like, that helps everyone involved. Okay, I didn't realize there was talk about changing the system if it's... Well, I'm not or... sure if everyone's thinking of changing. It's just, I think, when you look at how during the pandemic when people were tipping much more generously and all the terminals had changed to reflect this, that in this sort of post-lockdown state, a lot of operators haven't changed it back because well, there hasn't I, been a change necessary, I guess, that no one has, like, I guess, like publicly um, petitioned against this or um, I feel like some might give you the other option and if you get that then possibly you can tap that and put the amount that you're most comfortable with. But Well, yeah. I, I like it when I get that but, mm -hmm. but most of them, they don't even have 15% anymore. Yeah, it's 18%. Yeah. What do you think is the larger tipping here to stay, Renee? Um, I feel like as we all are starting to come back into this sort of regular routine of going out and doing what we had had always enjoyed doing pre, pre-pandemic restrictions, that people will start to look also at their pocketbooks. I mean, going out and doing these things, it is a treat. Um, I think that's one thing to keep in mind that it's technically, for most of us, going out to eat is not necessarily a daily sort of activity. And so when we are coming to that point of do we consider tipping as part of that overall expense? I think that the answer is yes. Uh, we all recognize that the restaurant industry, even though they're now coming back into operation, they did suffer a huge hit. Um, many are still in that post-pandemic, and it's technically the pandemic's not over, but in that post-pandemic recovery, uh, and that's still... Uh, it's tough. Um, we've got restaurant workers who are starting to get back into things. And so, you know, the, the assistance, any kind of assistance to help them um, with getting back on their feet after this long, hard time is probably something to keep in mind. Blog TO's resident food expert, Renee Suen. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Tony phoned from Etobicoke during our segment on TTC fare evaders. Yeah, the way I see it is public transit is it's a monopoly, right? So when you don't take cash fare, I can't go to the next transit, you know, like I can at the corner store or the bakery or whoever wants to just take a card or doesn't want to take my American Express. I have other options. You don't have other options with uh, 
the TTC and cash is legal tender and you are part of the government. Vera called from Woodbridge on the same topic. Well, I just want to make a comment. I don't take the bus. I used to years and years and years ago. But if you know you're going on a bus or a street car, that you need money. You've just got to prepare yourself. You know, these debit cards that they're trying to put in there, it's costing the TTC more money to put these uh, machines into every street car and every bus. It doesn't make sense to me. Everyone knows if you're going from A to B and, and back from B to A, it's a two-way thing. You've got to have some change on you. That's all there is. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Gord in Sarnia, who phoned about a first-hand experience with a hospitalized elderly loved one. We have a family member in in hospital, and it was a very frustrating experience in that the hospital was exceedingly aggressive about saying, you know, this person has to leave, and there was there's no funding. Like I don't know if people realize that, but unless you're in dire straits and have no income and no no assets, when you leave the hospital and go into any uh, assisted living or long-term care facility, you're expected to pay 100% of the bill. And in this con- in this situation, that wasn't an option for our family member because if they went into a, a assisted living or long-term care facility and were footing the bill, they would lose their house. And the hospital's attitude was, oh, well, too bad. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.